Well, it's already been a fabulous Easter Sunday, hasn't it? I think it is uh, safe to say that uh, Resurrection Sunday, or Easter Sunday as it is commonly called, is the most important celebration of the entire church calendar year. Uh, This morning from Matthew 27 through chapter 28, we're going to look at the reason why. So if you brought a Bible with you, I encourage you to grab that, and uh, we're going to look at the end of um, chapter 27, the beginning of chapter 28 today. The the reason why Easter Sunday is um, more significant than any other um, Sunday throughout the course of the church calendar is because it's not just a sentimental Sunday. Uh, This Sunday is a theological Sunday. Meaning that there are really important things, biblical truths, um, realities that happen, that we celebrate on this day that make a difference in in ways that, that frankly, are just stunning. In fact, Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday is really the, the defining moment that makes Christianity unique from all other religions. The reality is, is that Resurrection Sunday changed everything. For instance... Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to bring a message to earth from God that God was willing to make a remedy for people's sin. And that was the message, the ministry of Jesus' entire life. In fact, that's why he has the name Jesus. Matthew one twenty one says that he's to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so while there were lots of proposed prophets in the day, lots of proposed people who said that they spoke for God, there's only one who spoke for God and then rose again from the dead. So Jesus didn't join the not-so-sacred halls of failed saviors who claimed to be prophets, but then ultimately were defeated in death. So what happens on this day is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It would, on this particular day, demonstrate that he really was the Son of God. It would mean that he would be unstoppable. After all, what are you going to do with somebody who you can't kill? <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus Christ proved to be the single and most important moment in the history of Christianity because it proved once and for all that Jesus was indeed right. He really was the Son of God. He really did make a once-for-all payment for sins. And he told very clearly that reconciliation with a holy God is really possible, and that's what Easter Sunday is all about. So what I want to do today is I want to look at Matthew 27 and 28, and I want to look at two different responses to this subject of the resurrection of Jesus, and I want to show you why this is so important and how there are folks who view the resurrection of Jesus through a lens of unbelief and how there are folks who view the resurrection of Jesus through a lens of belief and then at the end tell you really why this is really, really important and why you made a really good choice to come to church on this Sunday. So first, here's the issue of fearful, self-protective unbelief. In, in chapter 27, we, we've, we found that Jesus was crucified and then he was buried. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew 27, 50 to 60, a, a wealthy man takes his body and then puts him into his own new tomb. And after he sets the body of Jesus into the tomb, he then takes a large stone and rolls it over the entrance. Now, on Saturday, the Sabbath, the religious leaders have an important meeting with Pilate. Uh, Verse 62 tells us that this meeting included the chief priests, the Pharisees, and um, Pilate. 
Now, you need to know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the chief priests, were not two groups that historically got along together. In fact, they disagreed strongly on one particular issue, that was the resurrection, whether or not it actually happened. And so ironically, these two groups get together, and they come to meet with Pilate, and look at verse uh, 63. It says, Sir... We remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, this is Matthew 27, 63, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure on the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So this statement that they make to Pilate is a really important statement. It's loaded, and there's three key words that you need to note. Notice, first of all, that they call Jesus an imposter. They call him an imposter. That word means that he leads people away. Well, where, where are they afraid that they're leading him, them away from? Well, they're worried that they're leading people away from them, from, from, from their control on religion, from their control of the whole system. So they're worried that this imposter is leading people away. Then secondly, notice also they call him a fraud. It, it's a word that's closely linked to the word imposter. Not only does it mean that you lead people away, but it means that your teaching is somehow deceitful. Or somehow from their vantage point, he's teaching people things that are going to cause them to not follow the party line anymore. So they call him an imposter, they call him a fraud, and then the most important word, in fact it's used three times within two verses, and that is the word secure. So imposter, fraud, and secure. They want the personal security of knowing that Jesus will not even be suspected of being raised from the dead. Because if someone thinks that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, or if that really happens, everything will change. So therefore, look at verse 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went And they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So what they did is what we often do to try and make things secure. We use our own ingenuity and our own power. So they took guards and they posted them in front of the tomb. And then they took a glob of wax and they put it next to that stone on the wall of the tomb. And then they put the Roman seal on that, which essentially said if anyone breaks this seal, they will be violating the authority of the Roman government. So they did everything they could in their power to make this tomb secure. They put a guard and they even put the imperial authority of Rome conditional on this uh, tomb not being opened. Notice that the religious rulers have now used everything in their power to try and stop Jesus. They've, they've used the imperial power of Rome. They've used guards. They, they've tried to threaten him while he was alive. They tried to discredit him. And when that didn't work, they killed him. They crucified him. But even while he's dead, they're still afraid that he's going to somehow interrupt their power base of the city of Jerusalem. Even after they crucified him, they're still working to stop him. Notice here how their unbelief has caused them to be afraid and self-protective. Afraid and self-protective. Do you know that fear and self-protection can lead you to unbelief? The Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, chapter 1 and verse 18, tells us that human beings, by our very nature, we suppress the truth of what we should be able to see, and we suppress it in unrighteousness. 
Here's what that means. That means that you should be able to look at creation and see the beauty of what God has done and look around you and realize that, that this just didn't happen by accident. To be able to see the beauty of what happens when, when, when the trees begin to bud and birds begin to sing and you look around and there's just something within you that says, you know what? There's something more than me that's on this planet. Or, um, when you look inside of your own heart and you realize that there are certain things within me that I know are right and wrong. There are certain things that there's this moral gravity that is within me, this sort of natural law that says, you know, some things are right and some things are wrong. And this sense that there's this moral law that even exists within my heart, that should tell you that there's a God who is real. Or for that matter, if you go to something that's beautiful or lovely, like for instance, a couple of years ago, I went to the symphony and, and the moment that the instrumentalist began to play, the sound that filled the chamber, it was like something other than these human beings have created the beautiful harmony that's coming out of this room. Or when you feel the, the beauty of love that you feel for a husband or a wife or something that you just have a strong emotion for a, a person, you, you got to realize that at the very core of who we are, we are worshipers, that there's loveliness and beauty, and that God did all of those things. And Romans tells us that even though we know those things are true, that we suppress them. How? We suppress them by pretending that God hasn't determined what's right and wrong. Pretending as if we're really not religious by doing things that we know are wrong and destructive. We pretend as if God doesn't exist by simply doing whatever we feel like we want. And when, then when guilt, when we, we wake up the next morning, we're like, you know, I know I shouldn't have done that. That was a bad decision. When the guilt, when the volume of that guilt gets higher and higher and higher, you know what we do? We drown it out with more and more bad choices, bad relationships, empty and shallow thrills. And we're trying to drown out this nagging voice in our brain that says, you know what? Maybe the Bible is right. Maybe creation does tell me that God exists. Maybe there is a point to all of this beyond just myself and my own choices. See, what happens is we, like the religious rulers, we're afraid. And we're self-protective. So here's what we do. We, we, we'd rather call him a phony or the entire religious system full of hypocrites. But underneath, the real issue underneath this underneath the issue is the fact that we're scared. We're afraid that if the Bible really is true, if God is really holy, if we really are sinners in need of forgiveness, and if the only way to really receive that forgiveness is by admitting that we're sinners, putting our trust in Christ, and having Him be our Savior and Lord, then we know that everything would change. Jesus would take over. We'd have to be different. We'd be radically new people. But the real tragedy is the fact that even though... He promises to make us new. We don't see that as hopeful. Instead, we see that as threatening and invasive. So, it is eternally tragic. This this thing of of fearful, self-protective unbelief. It's eternally tragic to view Jesus through this lens. And in fact, it is this lens that caused the religious rulers of the day to crucify, to kill their own Messiah. And This is what fearful, self-protective unbelief does. It it blinds us to the hope that's right in front of us. A, A message that we refuse to hear, even though somewhere in our hearts we know, yes, that's that has to be true. And this is what happens. Our fearful self protection leads us to unbelief. That's my guess is 
churches around the world are going to be filled with people today who they look at what religion is or what Christianity claims. And at the end of the day, what's really going on, is there is this fearful, self-protective unbelief. If I believe this, if I acknowledge this, then I would have to give up running my own life. And what they don't realize is the beauty of what that means, of giving up running your own life, could be the most wonderful, in fact, the Bible calls it good news. So, fearful, self-protective unbelief. That's the first portrait. Here's the second one. The second one is frightening, joyful belief. Frightening, joyful belief. Now, this is radically different, and I want to show you how it is different. Look at chapter 28 and verse 1. It tells us that two women went to the tomb early in the morning on the first day of the week. That day was Sunday, which is why we celebrate um, on the first day of the week because of the resurrection. And there's two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. The Bible tells us that as they're going, an earthquake strikes. This is the second earthquake. The first one happened at Jesus' crucifixion. The second one now happens at his resurrection. And Matthew connects this cosmic sign to the angel that comes. Interestingly enough, Matthew began this gospel with an angel announcing that Jesus would come. He announced that to Joseph. And now an angel appears again, sort of like a two bookends, at the end of this book, communicating that he has been risen from the dead. Now, the angel comes and he rolls the stone away. But don't miss this. He doesn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out. Jesus is already out. The reason he rolls the stone away is to let people like Mary and Martha, or Mary and the other Mary rather, into the tomb like you and me so we can see what's happening. Now, the angel's appearance, according to what the Bible tells us here, is shocking. Verse 3 describes him in otherworldly terms. His appearance was like lightning, it says. His clothing was white as snow. And, and notice what happens when he comes down. The effect on the guards is dramatic. It says, for fear of him, the guards trembled and they became like dead men. What happened here is they were probably so overcome with fear that um, they passed out. So, get this, you got passed out Roman soldiers, you got a tomb that was sealed by the Roman government, rolled away, and, and here's this angel sitting on top of the stone, almost as if God wants to say, you know what, you can't touch this, right? It's a little MC Hammer theology for you there, so. You can't touch this! And, and so, therefore, the, the angel in all the brilliance of this power says this to the women, don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now listen to this. This, What he's going to say here next, these two verses contain the the summary of the heart of the heart of the heart of what the Bible is all about. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. And then he says, go then quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So this is the heart of the heart of what the Bible is all about. Often it's called the gospel, and it's very simple. It's this, that Jesus was crucified, but now he's alive. And, And what that means is that... He's not an imposter. He's not a fraud. He really is the Son of God. He really is able to forgive sins. He is able to draw men to himself. He is all of these things, even right now, because he is not dead. He is alive. So it's no wonder that these women, according to verse 8, they they depart from the tomb, and the text says they depart with fear and great joy. I've called this frightening joy. 
frightening joy. You know that kind of emotion? It's the kind of emotion that you have when you know that something is really incredibly important news and it's going to radically change your life. Where you have this instant mix of two emotions, fear and joy. For instance, I think of various moments in my lifetime when I had two emotions, fear and joy at the exact same time. One would be when the doctor said, oh, it's twins. Oh, fear and joy. So those things could go together. Uh, I, I can think of the moment when I was standing at the front of the um, the church and my wife was walking down the aisle. We were going to get married. There was fear and joy. I'm going to get married. And oh, man, we're going to be married. And you know, all those things. And But I also think of a moment before I got married when I asked my um, in-laws for the, their, their daughter's hand in marriage. So it was uh, my junior year, the summer, and... Um, uh, we were planning to be married after graduation, and I was on tour with a with a group. I was their their traveling speaker with a quartet group that went around around, and and so we were making a tour through Michigan. I had saved all year to buy the ring. I had it all planned out where I was going to ask her when, and I wanted it to be right at the end of the tour. So that meant that I had to ask her parents for permission to marry Sarah sometime during the tour. Well, we happened to be singing at their church. And so I was staying at their house with the whole team, about four other guys. And so, unfortunately, they all went to bed really late, and so did her parents. And I'm thinking, this is my only window. I, I've got to ask for Sarah's hand in marriage. It's got to happen tonight, or the whole plan's going to fall apart. So it's like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. So I walked upstairs, and they had already gone to bed. And I knocked on their bedroom door. <laughs> and I said, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Ashbaugh, are you there? And they're like, who's there? And I'm like, this is... I'm like, this is uh, Mark. Can I talk to you for a second? They're like, yeah, sure. So, so they open the door, and uh, this is crazy. I can see this scene in my head. Um, it's not a real good one. And uh, so they're, they're in their pajamas, and literally we're sitting on the edge of their bed. And uh, they're like, so what's going on? And I, so I'm fumbling through my words. I'd like to ask your daughter to marry me. Can we have your permission? Da, 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 da. And, and of course they said yes and everything else. And it was this, this beautiful, wonderful, awkward moment. Can you... <laughs> kind of get out of our bedroom now kind of a thing and 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 i remember closing the door and and walking down the hallway thinking yes and yet having this fearful frightening joy so it's those kind of emotions that happen almost simultaneously frightening joy when you know that what just happened is going to change everything in an instant it's frightening joy so that's what these women feel because they know what you know, and that is this, that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. In fact, they, they go on their way to find the disciples, and Jesus shows up. And he shows up, and notice what he says. So, so get this. So you've, they followed this guy for three years. They saw him beaten. They watched him die. They watched him breathe his last breath. They probably watched him as he was taken out from the cross, put in the tomb. He was dead. And for a few days, all of their hopes are gone. And now he's alive. And then you're making your way back to see the disciples. And Jesus shows up and he says, greetings. (laughs) Can you believe that? Greetings, right? And what do they do? They fall on their faces and they grab his feet and they worship him. Why? Because everything that they've ever loved about him, everything they've ever believed about him now is, is come true. There he is right in front of them. Their, their worst fears have now been allayed. He really is truly the, the son of God. He's alive. He's alive. Our passage then ends with Jesus' simple instructions. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. According to the other gospel accounts, we know they went and found the other disciples. 
and told them the amazing news. And what amazing news it was. The fact that Jesus is alive changed absolutely everything. Now, what are the implications of this? Let me give you four. So, some of you might wonder, okay, so, so why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? Why, why is this day such a big deal? Why would we sing like this? Why would we talk about this? Why would we spend time just rehearsing the importance of this day? This, this is a big time day. And let me show you why. The first is this reason. The resurrection showed us that Jesus' words are trustworthy. So Jesus said, I will be lifted up. I'll draw all men to myself. He predicted his crucifixion. He, he also said that he would rise again from the third day. And so the fact that you can take Jesus at his word is really important. Here's why. Because he also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. What that means is that there's no other way for a person to come to the Father. There's no other way. And so therefore, the only means by which a person can really understand both who they are and who God is, is through trusting the trustworthy words of Jesus. So what happens here is the empty tomb shows us that his words are worthy of our trust. That Jesus can be believed. At the end of the, end of the day, the difference between somebody who knows that their sins forgiven and somebody who doesn't know that their sins are forgiven is what they've done in terms of trusting Jesus. And Jesus' words are trustworthy and that resurrection from the grave proved that. Here's the second thing. The second thing is that Jesus' death proved, or rather his resurrection proved, that his death had the approval of God. So if, if God's plan was to redeem the world, to pull the world out of the curse of sin, then according to the Bible, the only way to do that is for someone to die to pay for those sins. And the plan of God was that Jesus, a sinless man, comes to earth, he, he hangs on a cross and he dies in order to pay for your sins, in order to pay for my sins. And the beautiful thing that happens is that God then takes Christ's death and he applies it to your life and he takes your punishment and he gives it to Jesus. And this divine exchange is beautiful except that if Jesus remains in the grave, then it would not have indicated the Father's approval that an appropriate sacrifice had been given. And so the resurrection of Jesus shows us not only that his sacrifice was acceptable, but that it was pleasing to God, and therefore that grace is available through Christ. Here's the third thing. Jesus' resurrection shows us that Christ's sacrifice on the cross defeated sin. Do you know what sin is? Sin is just simply the desire to be autonomous. It's that you want to write your own rules. You want to be your own God. Do your own thing. And not have anybody, especially God, tell you, hey, you shouldn't do that. Or that doesn't fit in accordance with my will. And the effect of this self-autonomy is that death has come. Death is the consequence of sin. And so when Jesus conquers death, what that signals is he's not only conquered death, he's conquered the thing under death, which is sin. So Christ becomes the one who hangs on that cross in order to conquer not just death but sin. Such that Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sins. Saved from judgment. Saved from the wrath of God. And the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that his sacrifice on the cross defeated sin. That once and for all there was a way for sin to really be forgiven. And that doesn't happen by you doing your stuff, but instead by placing your hope in someone else. That's why John Newton said that grace is amazing. Amazing grace. 
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Then finally, the resurrection promises eternal life for those who put their faith in Jesus since death has been conquered. So here's the amazing and powerful thing. The empty tomb becomes then a symbol of for those who put their faith in Jesus. To put your faith in Him means that at the core of who you are, you realize that you're a sinner, that you need forgiveness, that you can't self-atone, you can't do enough stuff to earn God's favor, and that the only hope is for you to put your trust in Christ. So if you were to stand before God and He were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? The only answer on that day is, I put my faith in your Son. I'm counting His death as my own. I've asked you to cleanse me of my sins, not by what I have done, but by placing my faith in Him. And the effect of this is incredible. 1 John 5 says, In this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. By the way, that's not just eternal life. That's life like right now. Like understanding how the whole world fits together and and what God's plan is and that you've been made a new creation. It means that God takes out this, this old heart that's bent towards evil and sin and He puts new hearts, new desires, new longings within you. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So what happens here, friends, is that the resurrection of Jesus frees those who have been forgiven of their sins, not only in the future, but it also frees us now. Why? Because an empty tomb means that even death can't separate those who've received Christ from the love of God. So like Jesus is unstoppable because he has conquered death, so those who know the name of Christ are also unstoppable. And that's why Romans 8 is in the Bible, that there's nothing, no height, nor depth, nor any creature that could be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That verse is in the Bible so that we could do unbelievably significant things for the glory of God and not fear. Because what's the worst they could do? Kill you? Yeah, even that means you're translated into glory. Throughout the generations, people have tried to tell the story of the Bible in various means, sometimes on Sunday, like a sermon like this. Sometimes through a song and sometimes through a film. A couple years ago, 2004, many of you probably saw Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ. Do you know before that was ever produced, there are a lot of other films as well? For instance, there's a director named Cecil B. DeMille. Probably most of you know him because he produced the movie Ten Commandments. Remember Charlton Heston and... Remember that? Well, his first film trying to really grapple with biblical stuff was a silent film. It was produced in 1927. The title of it was called The King of Kings, a silent film. In fact, missionaries used it all around the world, similar to the Jesus film used by Campus Crusade. They they used this silent film to be able to tell people the story of Jesus' life. And in DeMille's autobiography, he tells an unbelievable story about the fact that this film had a significant impact in one man's life. In 1928, there was a man named William Walner who saw that film, fell under conviction, gave his heart and life to Christ, and became a minister. In 1939, while he was leading a Lutheran church, the World War II happened. And the Nazis came in, and a church member of his particular congregation, a doctor, who was a Jewish convert, was sent to a concentration camp. 
He later heard the story that this person was so in love with Jesus that he encouraged his fellow prisoners, listen to this, to die bravely with faith in their hearts, and as a result, the doctor became the target of the Gestapo officers. Although struck with an iron rod until one of his arms had to be amputated, the doctor would not be quiet about his faith in Jesus. One Gestapo officer beat the doctor so severely until blood was streaming down his face, and then he held up a mirror, and the Gestapo officer sneered, Take a look at yourself. Now you look like your Jewish Christ. To which the doctor said, Lord Jesus, never in my life have I received such an honor to resemble you. You can't touch that. And that would be his last words on the earth. So convicted was the Gestapo officer of what he had done that he went to the pastor, Walner, confessed his sins and said, what can I do to relieve myself of this terrible guilt? To which that pastor said, perhaps God let you kill that good man to bring you to the foot of the cross. You see, this is what the cross of Christ, this is what the resurrection of Jesus does. It frees people to, to live beyond the bondage of their sin so that they can live radically free lives. Because when you know that your sins are forgiven, both past, present, and future, you know your eternal destiny is sealed in the court of heaven because of the blood of Jesus, and no one can separate you from the love of God, that radically changes how you view the world, and marriage, and kids, and sex, and money, and economics, and politics. It radically changes everything, because a risen Christ changes everything about your life. If there was no risen King of Kings, there would be no forgiveness, there would be no hope, there would be no eternal life. But hallelujah, He is risen, He is risen indeed. And the fact that He is risen changes absolutely everything. Father, we pray that You would graft to our hearts the reality of this Word that we would understand the power of what it means to believe in Christ and Christ alone. We ask you that in your mercy, that you would show us how this text needs to be lived out in our lives. I pray, Father, that today, on this day, that we would know what it means to know you and to know the reality of your crucifixion, but also your resurrection. Thank you that in you alone, We have forgiveness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.